Okay. Are are you ready? 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 Okay, it's time for our foul weather friend. Foul weather. He's not foul. He's a he's a weathered foul friend. He's a weathered foul friend. Welcome to the Boil Dow Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Howdy, Don. I'm Sam, y'all. Hi, Sam. We're shaking. All four cheeks and a couple of chins. <laughs> I got that from Cheers. Do you remember go. the Cheers? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm trying to keep from getting to be large like that. You know, meth really works for that. I t- <laughs> well, I'm trying to avoid meth, too. Oh, okay. So I'm trying to avoid eating a lot of donuts and that kind of thing. But I was having lunch with my sponsee, and we... We had a great lunch. We solved all the world's problems. Ooh, sweet. And yeah, yeah when we let go with a passion. But then I said, you know, I'm going to confess. It is all I can do leaving this place to avoid going to Donut World and getting an big apple fritter that they have there. It's like glowing in oh, my Oh, they mind. are the best. And... You know, I really <laughs> would like to go get one of those. I, yeah. I might do it. And he, he kept looking at me and said, so you're wanting me to co-sign your bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I, I was immediately going for sponsor, sponsor, to thine own self. Be, be true. true. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he pulled out the old co-sign the bullshit line. Oh, God. Oh. You know, in your defense, Don, Donut World's apple fritters are the only ones that I've ever had that actually have apple in them. They do have apple in them. <laughs> it's good stuff. <sighs> Don't, yeah. So did you do it? No, I didn't. When's the last no. time you had one? Oh, it's it's been a while. Are you going to get one after we finish this episode? If I can get you to co-sign. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, well, we've got a guess. Maybe I'll be able to get Richard to co-sign my bullshit. I'm not. I, no. Uh, no. Here you go. He's out. Introduce hey, yourself. Hello. Thanks for having me. My name is Richard. Glad you're here, Richard. I am Thanks an alcoholic. Yeah, we know that. I knew that you knew that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. When did you get sober? Uh, I got sober August 29th, 1992. A.D. A.D. Yes. 1992. You got yeah. sober two years before I did. Wow. And Oh, once again, you're not the old timer. I'm not the I old thought, timer. I here. thought you were the dusty one here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be darned. Uh, no, and I, mm. and I want to talk about some of that because yeah. you had a, you had an influence. Some, some things that you talked about a lot when mm-hmm. uh, in those earlier days there that really helped me. Along the same way. But so what was the story? How did you get into AA? Had well, you heard of it before? Um, I, you know, I I hadn't really heard of AA until I ended up in a court-affiliated uh, class oh. for DUIs. Okay. And they suggested that 
I look up Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, it's a suggestion. I, you didn't, well, it was, it was a suggestion. I didn't. Okay. Well, eventually it was court order. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> this was the first experience where someone said, you know, you might want to look up alcohol. And I thought, well, AA must, might be able to help me with this DUI. So, uh, you know, okay. of course yeah. I'm going to. It'll make you look good. I'm going to look that up. Yeah. You know. And so that's that's kind of how I got my start. I started going over to the Unity Club. Mm-hmm. I went to treatment in 1982 oh um, okay and so i i experienced aa there in a group setting you know when i first started with that that first dui it was like eh, this this isn't really for me it was a lot of old folks it wasn't a lot of young people then mm-hmm. and so i i went checked it out i was like yeah i'll deal i'll get out of the court thing i don't need aa so but then i ended up in treatment after a couple more duis mm-hmm uh, Wait a minute! You went to treatment, but it didn't take. Not that time, no. Actually, I, I I went to treatment twice. I went in 1982. Uh-huh. Stuck around, came to some meetings, ate a few cookies, okay. uh, and then I. They didn't have Donut World back. They then. did you not. Might you know, have I, we were talking about that apple fritter. I gained half a pound just thinking about that. <laughs> but no, they um, it didn't stick at that point. You know, and I and I went back to drinking some more. Apparently, I had not had enough pain, as they like to say. Yeah. Uh, ended up back in treatment again in 1986. Same treatment facility. Again, it didn't take. I stuck around a little bit longer, but I just I didn't fully invest, you know, like what we need to do. I was only doing half. Half measures uh-huh. <laughs> availed us nothing. Yeah. And that was true in my case. Uh, and so I, you know. Did you think you were doing it? Did you? Of course. You know, yeah. and, and I was of the mindset you know, I hear a lot of people talk about the third tradition, you know, the only requirement for membership in AA is a desire to stop drinking. And I thought having that desire was, was good. I would, you know, if I didn't want to drink, I wouldn't have to drink, right? <laughs> it doesn't work like that, of course. Um, but I thought I was doing it. You know, I was doing a lot of the things they suggest we do, except enlarging my spiritual life, uh-huh. okay. which is, you know, key. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so again, I, I left after a period of time, something probably didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And my solution was drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think my solution, alcohol was never a problem for me. It was always a solution mm-hmm. until it wasn't a solution anymore. And so I made it back in 1992, uh, through some various avenues, uh, and I came just straight back into Alcoholics Anonymous, no treatment or anything. I just came in and shook it out you know wow yeah you started shaking oh i had the shakes when i came back in 92 i'd been on a four-year run probably hadn't drawn a sober breath in i don't Mm. know how long uh and so i just came right back right back over to the unity club it was still there there were still people there who'd been there 10 years prior Mm -hmm. you know and which was kind of cool that's cool um and they said yeah because that's an example of exactly this has got to work if they're still here something's working yeah. Something's got to be working. Now, whatever I'm doing is not working. I don't know what they're doing, but it's apparently working. So I need to I need to investigate that. And so I just I came back into the club. I joined that uh, No Frills. I think it was No Frills. Mm-hmm. Fred and Sandy no uh, Frills, at the Uni Club. Study. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just started coming to that meet. I think somebody one of the old timers gave me half a cup of coffee and said, "Just kind of sit over there <laughs> so you don't spill that on us when you shake." Uh, and and you know, right. we're glad right. you're here. So, you know, that's where it started for me, August 29th, 92. I I came back wow. and that's my surrender date. Yeah. You know, at that point did you 
Did you go to meetings every day? I then? went. Uh, I think uh, that Thursday, uh, I went to the young people's meeting, and I saw who uh, would become my sponsor, Matt. Um, and I had seen Matt six years prior as I was coming in and out. Matt uh-huh. was here. Mm-hmm. And when I came back six years later, he was still there. And and I asked Matt to help me. I asked Matt to sponsor me at that point. You know, it was like, I, you know, for the first time, I think, in the in the process of, of looking into recovery, I went up to another alcoholic and said, can you please help me? Stop drinking. I, I want to stop, but I don't know how. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's the big yeah. question. Getting it though. Yeah, and then the the, the shocker was Matt. <laughs> Matt said, "Well, Richard, I'll be glad to help you. In fact, you're going to help me more, and I'm going to help you." And I thought, "Well, we'll be drunk in two weeks because yeah, I don't know what you're talking." <laughs> but the cool thing, I you know, and you guys probably know this, uh, you know, when we come here, we don't need to know. I don't need to know how to stay sober. No. If the person I'm asking has been doing this, he knows. Mm-hmm. what I'll need to do. No, we need to, what we need to do is admit that we don't know. That's right. And, I don't know is a great statement. I mean, <laughs> I got to, I have to get sober somebody else's way. Exactly. I have to do some things I wouldn't normally do and listen to some people I normally wouldn't listen to, you know, and that's uh, the best statement I ever, the most honest statement I ever said was, I don't know. So you, you know? call that so, your yeah. surrender date. That was my surrender. Yeah. August 29th, 1992. And what was different from the other attempts uh, in sobriety? Well, I think what was different is every, at, at that point, from that first experience through that treatment facility, I don't think my drinking was ever the same. I never really drank with any success or any freedom because I felt a lot of guilt. Just from hearing some things. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't think I belonged there, when I would start drinking, the things I would hear would come to me, and I'd I'd feel that guilt and that shame and drink. You, and so you knew what was going on. I kind of knew, you know. Yes. And the, I think our book talks about many of us realize we have a problem long before we get to AA. Mm-hmm. So long before that surrender date, I realized there was something going on. There was I was having problems. Um, I didn't want to admit it. Uh, I wanted to keep blaming, you know, the ex. The jobs, the the parents, whatever, the courts. I I didn't want to say it was my issue, you know. Mm-hmm. But until I could look at, get honest with myself and say, this isn't working. And so every time I drank, it just you know it got worse. And there, you know, it's progressive, mm-hmm. and that's what happened. It progressed, and I and I you know I don't say I lost anything along the way, but I sacrificed so much. You know, I sacrificed a lot of things. Oh God, because that's, of, a, that's because that's of a kind drink, of an awful you know? way to put it. It's yeah, a sacrifice. It I mean, is, I sacrificed yeah. my family. I sacrificed a daughter, a career. You know, my driving privileges, everything. I sacrificed along the way because I couldn't put that mm-hmm. drink down. Mm-hmm. You know, my intentions were not to sacrifice that. You know, those things. It just happened because once I take a drink, I keep drinking. Mm-hmm. You know. So you came in. What was the thing that was different from before? Want to talk about step three. Talk about your experience with God. Because you said that what yep. was different was you failed to enlarge Absolutely. your spiritual life. What do you yeah. mean by that? Well, it's, um, you know, and in, in how it works where it talks about, you know, the principles we have set down are guides to progress. I don't know how many times I read that section of the literature and, and must have missed that, you know. Mm-hmm. That's how we mark our progress. So I knew that 
I was going to have to have a more spiritual approach to this thing instead of just a phys- physically feeling better or mentally feeling better because that, that, that's what happened prior is I'd feel a little better, I'd think a little clearer, but I never did anything to come to an understanding with a higher power of my own. Did you work the steps before? Did oh, you do no. third step, I mean fourth step and fifth step? Not, not prior to August 29th. Oh, okay. Oh, now, you know, in the treatment facility that I was in, of course, that's part of the, but I, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, wasn't honest. Uh You know, I wasn't going to, I was not, when they, when they had this gentleman, Dennis, Dennis came and did my fifth step when I was first in, and Dennis was a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous, died sober. Uh, But Dennis came to do my, and he was a large black man scared the hell out of me i'm sitting there thinking there's no way i'm telling this guy anything about my past yeah I, I, there's mm-hmm. no way i'm just i was petrified so i lied I, you know i was dishonest and and eventually drank again uh-huh. um when i think back to the surrender august 29th 92 i i just remember saying that day you know god if you are there if you don't help me i'm screwed uh-huh. You know, and I went to that uh, meeting and I met Matt, saw Matt, asked him to help me. And, and Matt immediately started taking me through the big book, started trying to give me his own experience, strength and hope. You know, and that was something that was awful, always helpful to me is that no one in AA ever. Well, most everybody in AA didn't tell me what I had to do or need. They suggested that if I wanted what they had. They might, I might want to try and do what they did, and they yeah. would tell me what they did. Come along with me. Yeah, you know, just hop in the back, enjoy if, the ride. If you want to, come yeah. along with me. I'll show yeah. you how I do it. I mean, they told me, you know, try this for 90 days. If you don't like it, we'll refund your misery. You know, it's, yeah. it's yeah. refundable. <laughs> That's it. You know, uh, I was tired of getting refunded misery, so I, I just got on board and became willing to do whatever Matt suggested. And it wasn't hard because Matt was involved in young young people's, and I got involved in young people's. And that's part of what helped me really in the beginning was because my mindset was always like, you know, what kind of life am I going to have if I'm not drinking? What kind of fun am I going to have? Of course, we look back over the last 10 to 15 years of my drinking. It wasn't, it wasn't much fun. So my <laughs> yeah. perception of fun is a scoot. But, yeah, right. you know, how am I going to enjoy not drink? And, you know, getting involved with the young adults at that time uh, really springboarded me. I think it's, you know— uh, if it wasn't for that, I may not have stuck around. I don't know, but I know that helped me stay is being involved with a bunch of other young people. I was 30 when I got sober, so mm-hmm. I met a lot of people in their okay. 20s um, who were having fun, doing things. An example, yeah, it's yeah. possible to have fun Absolutely. sober, and it doesn't seem like it's gonna, that's going to be the case. It, it didn't in the beginning, Yeah, you know. Uh, and, you know, and to tell the truth, you know, if I just came in here and had fun, I might not be sitting here. So I had to do a lot of work. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard I've heard it, people talk about, you know, when we start drinking, we're having fun. Life kind of takes on a little different direction, and it becomes hard, you know, mm-hmm. and, and especially when we're drinking. It, it just gets tough, mm-hmm. and we have to reverse that. We have to come in here and do a little work, you know, because life's hard. When I came in here, life was, you know, I thought— what's what's the purpose of being here so it was hard but life took on some different meaning and i started to have fun i think it, it just had to reverse itself yeah. but i i did get busy even though i was hanging out with those young folks and doing a lot of things with matt had me involved in service 
early. You know, he had me That's involved great. in the book. He had me involved in working these steps to the best of my ability. Not just working them, but having a, a knowledge of what the principles were and trying to apply those in my life. And that's, you know, the secret to sobriety for me is that these principles, if I practice these principles in my life, I'm going to learn how to navigate through the ups and downs that mm-hmm. are coming, right? As I heard an old-timer describe it as this once. He said, you know, we come in here and we learn that this is a spiritual program. And so as human beings, what we have to do is we have to become spiritual beings surrounded by these principles. And if we practice those principles, they help us navigate through our human experience. And I thought that was cool. You know, that's cool because my human experience, all of our human experience is not going to be forever. So I want to be as in tune with with my God as I can until that day comes, you know, and live happy, joyous, and free. So you said you started out praying to the God you didn't believe in. I don't know if it's that I didn't believe in it, Don. I grew up Catholic. You know, mm-hmm. and as a good Catholic, I took my first drink when I was like 11 as an <laughs> altar boy, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I had. Did you reject the, the what you had learned about God before? I guess you reject came would in? be good, you know, to put a word on it. Well, I don't know that I rejected like it, but I wasn't really practicing anything I heard in the church, uh-huh. you know. So it's not like I didn't have a belief. I, I think I've always had a belief that there is something greater than me. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really start to get in tune with that until I until I got sober, you know. You know they say, you know, when when you get to that spot where you're finally suffering from the headaches and heartaches and hangovers, you you look for God. Mm-hmm. And back then I didn't look for God because I wasn't at eleven, I wasn't well, suffering. Nah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah. It just kind of, I got to that place where it was like I, I have to go all in with with God. Uh huh. You know, doesn't matter what I believe. Doesn't doesn't matter what your opinion is or anybody else's opinion. I've mm-hmm. got to come in and get in tune with something greater yeah. than myself. Yeah. And in the beginning, it was AA, right? Because that's a power greater than me. A group of drunks. They always said that. Mm-hmm. A group G-O-D. of drunks. If that's I'm in the a middle, really good path. You know, in. For, and that's particularly for somebody that's resistant. To yeah, the idea that's kind of how that worked. That's kind of how it worked for me. Is mm-hmm. like I just got in the middle of AA. You know, I got involved with a group of drunks in my home group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so. I'm curious, did you end up applying that to, you got to the place where the community of AA, and I mean, I think God is alive in relationships. Oh, absolutely. And God speaks to me, not with a voice in my head, Mm -hmm. but through somebody will say in a meeting, exactly Mm -hmm. what I need to hear. Absolutely. Um, So how did that work for you that you began to to say, okay, well, this is God? Well, like, this, this is a big topic for some people it's like impossible when i I think about it it's like for me the first step was really plain and simple i'm powerless this is the bottom here's where you are now there's a way up from there if you choose to go that way Mm -hmm. and it starts with the second step you know and the second step is where i get that hope and that's where i would hear people in meetings talk about things and i would sit there saying that's got to be a power Greater than me, greater than them, the way they're describing that. And I would hear people say, that power is here. It's in every room we walk into, you know. And and I got to that place where it was like, I'm always under the ceiling of God's love today. It's, whether I'm in a building or out on the lake, you know, it's there's no end to it. It's just wide open. And and I think that's where I got it was the second step, hearing people sharing meetings, Tragedy, you know, things about, you know, their homes burning down, their children dying, 
and yet they were staying sober. And I was yeah. like, man, this has got to be a yeah, power Yeah, you hear those here. stories, and yeah. it's like, uh, th- yeah. there's some authority from that. Somebody there is. staying sober there's something through to terrible that. circumstances. That example. You know, it gives me it gives me the good shiver. It gives me yeah. that, whoa, man. You know, it's like, yeah. wow, there's got to be a power at work. And, that's, and so I made that decision in the third step. You know, and, and, you know, I'm grateful for people like Matt and the, the guys who were here before me who said, you know, that decision is just based on, you know, your action you're going to take in that fourth step and, and mm-hmm. on. You know, you're making a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of this God as you understand or as you misunderstand, but you're making that decision. Some of those old timers said, don't even try to understand it. You know, leave that part off for now. Just make a decision to yeah. turn your will and your life over to the care of God. You know, and what that is, is you're thinking in your actions, Yeah. you know? And so they said, if you start thinking different, if you start acting different, you might be following the dictates of a higher power, you know, but it starts with me. I have to be willing to do that. Right. And so that's where it started for me. It was just, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to do this inventory, you know, regardless mm-hmm. of, of all the anxiety I had prior to that, I was willing to do it. And I did that. I did my inventory, no problem. I did it over the course of a weekend. I took a couple of breaks. Mm-hmm. You know, my sponsor suggested if you get hungry, stop, go eat, but come back. Don't leave it sit. Because in the past, I'd start, and i just let it sit there. Let it go. Never yeah. do nothing with it. I finished that thing in the course of the weekend, you know, and, and I got with him the next couple of days after that, and we did, a, we did my fifth step in his home. We got down on our knees, you know, and he prayed with me, which was really cool. You know, which is another one of those things where where you talk about how do we get it, to this? It was the sponsor who put, showed the way for right. me. Mm-hmm. He showed me. Yeah. yeah. He just, he kind of just, sh- and that made it really simple. You know, he was willing to do those things, you know, yeah. and I was like, well, if he's willing to do it, I'm going to do it. You know? Yeah. Um, I really thought that uh, I started to feel like some people cared. People really did care about me. Mm-hmm. And they probably cared about me before, but because my perception's all messed up, I'm thinking nobody gives a damn about Richard. I'm a piece of garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody loves me. I'm unlovable. And that's not true, you know. And Matt, Matt kind of loved me until, you know, we hear it all the time. We'll love you until you can love yourself. Yeah. And that's kind of what Matt did and some of the other folks who were here. There were, there were some old-timers here, you know, men and women who, you know, love me, man. Yeah. You know, really did. Took me under yeah. their wings. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for those. It's folks. a beautiful And that's thing. the fellowship, you know? Yeah. When I think of the triangle, the, the, the fellowship is that unity. It yeah, I remember that, you know? I could feel that. I would share yeah. something in a meeting, and <clears throat> the old-timers who were there would just, like, I could tell they were, they could see that my thinking was screwed up. But you, I, could, I could feel that they really cared oh, yeah. about what I yeah. said and where I was. Mm-hmm. And, like, Don— you can let go of this, mm-hmm. you know, you can mm-hmm. do this. And I can feel that I'm not doing, they've right. got something, right? but I'm going to, I'm going to follow them because I could feel the love that they had yeah. for me. You, I, it, It's beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I always knew that when they could tell how my thing was messed up because they'd give that giggle, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let us know how that works for you. <laughs> You know, so, yeah, I could tell, you know, I, I thought I had some great ideas and I'd run them by Matt and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, let me, let me know how that works for you, you know, and it's funny, it's like. The knowing <clears throat> chuckle. Matt, uh, I, I would hear people say, you know, look for a sponsor who has something you want, which I took really out of context. 
because when I, when I met Matt, he had a job, he had a 280Z, and he had a pretty girlfriend, and that's what I wanted. Yeah. You know, and, and I didn't get any of that stuff. You know, what I found out is that, and I would hear people say later, is find a sponsor who's content with what they have and ask them how they attained it. You know? I like that. And Ooh, that's, like that's that, kind of yeah. like, how did you get that? And, you know, it's not like I went on a candlelight romantic dinner. He said, I prayed. I meditated. I, I, I asked for God's will to be done, not mine. You know, and, those, yeah. and the patience that takes, you know, and the consistency of doing that or the pers- persistence of doing that. And things will happen. You know, and regardless of what happens, if I'm doing, if I'm working this program the way it's outlined, I'm going to be okay with whatever happens. You know, I'm going to trust. I think the, the, the big, the big secret is trust God, clean house and help others. Mm-hmm. And if I do those things, I'm going to be okay no matter what happens. Right. I'm just, uh, so, uh, so I want to talk with you about, yeah. I want to talk with you about making amends mm. because I think that you were making amends at that point to mm. your dad mm-hmm. or you were dealing with your rela- relationship with your father. Right. And my relationship with my father was terrible. Mm. I just wanted nothing to do with him. Right. I was told I could pray for him. And I did this yeah. prayer where I would, well, actually I heard this in a meeting where you pray for the son of a bitch. Right. It, God right. doesn't care. If, <laughs> yeah. If, if, if start where you are. That's right. Yeah. And I had to start where I was with it. And that's where I started. Mm-hmm. And at the end of two weeks of doing this prayer, plus a lot of inventory work and other things beforehand, mm-hmm. there was a, well, there was a spiritual transformation sure. that happened out, out of that prayer. Right. But he was a WW2 guy, mm-hmm. real standoffish, oh, yeah. not emotional, no, no affection. Mm-hmm. I always like felt like he would, uh, well, he'd never hug me. Mm-hmm. And I remember you sharing in a meeting that mm-hmm. you were struggling with your father mm-hmm. and you said, this is where you helped me. And mm-hmm. without even knowing it, probably you said that you realized that, well, you could hug him just because right. he didn't hug you. That doesn't make any difference. You could right. hug him right. and you did. And mm-hmm. he hugged you back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did that, and my dad hugged me right. back, and it was beautiful. Yeah, it was like, and what I ended up doing with my dad was I quit fighting him, mm-hmm. and would, now we still disagreed on a lot right. of stuff, mm-hmm. but we did get to a place where it, I dropped my end of the rope mm-hmm. that of the tug of war right. that we had. Mm-hmm. I let go mm-hmm. of my side of the rope. Right. And our relationship improved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And it was, and it's one of the things that really started. It was your example, sharing no, that in a meeting. That's amazing. I, and, you know, that's the, I think that's the beauty of what we have here is that we never know when we're going to help yes. somebody. You well, know, you were sharing some really personal <clears throat> stuff. I mean, I, <clears throat> I remember uh, I had one sponsor, he said that he was new in recovery and he was talking with his partner. And his partner's son, oh, I don't know about that AA thing. They will talk about anything. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. (laughs) We're an open book here. (laughs) Yeah. And it, but it's true. It was really personal what you were sharing, what you were going through, because you were struggling with Mm -hmm. it. And I could feel that struggle. I was going, God, this is like, this is intense. This guy's like real about this. And that's it. You know, I'm sharing about my struggle, which is, it's all about me. 
Yeah. I ain't thinking about anybody else, yeah. but it's amazing how that helps other people. And yeah. that's, that is the cool thing about it. And my, me and my father were like, oh, salt and pepper, man. My, my father was 23 year Marine. You talk about no emotion. Mm-hmm. He had, he, he had no emotion. And if you showed emotion, it was, it was angry. It looked angry, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, that was the acceptable emotion. I mean, yeah. He, he never, I never saw him cry. Um, but we, we were at ends. I was this drunk, rebellious hellraiser, and he was a, he was a man of uniform, a disciplinarian. Uh, so yeah, we were at odds. And, and I think what helped me in all that, as I got to that amends, when we're talking about amends, was one of the things Matt suggested to me was, um, you know, just just go over there. You don't have to talk to your dad. Just go sit with him. You know, I realized that my father probably, all he ever wanted was a sober son. I just think he wanted me to do well. Uh-huh. I think every father wants that for their child if you're in a, a good, healthy family. You know, and I, I'm sure that's, I'm sure my father wanted that for me. And I think some of the ways he tried to express it, you know, to me were wrong, but to him it was out of love. Mm-hmm. I just didn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, you know, Matt, of course, praying about it before you do that. Uh, so I would just go over there and sit with him. One one of the things Matt suggested is because of the trouble I had with my father was, Matt said, do you even know anything about your father? Do you know anything about his childhood, what he went through? Because, you know, people go through things in life, and they, this causes them to react a certain way, to, to talk a certain way. You know, and I never really understood my father's childhood. Mm-hmm. And I went over there one day. I said, you know, just tell me about your childhood. And, and you know, he kind of hemmed and hawed. And, but, you know, in hearing some of that stuff, it was like, wow. You know, he had a rough life, you know, he, he and he didn't drink, but his, his, you know, his, his parents were Alkies, you know, so he had a rough life. And so I, I kind of started to understand that place he was at or where he, he had come from. And it kind of helped me in, in losing the judgment. I think we still argued too, Don, mm-hmm. but Matt would say, you don't always have to be right. In fact, you can say, you may be right, dad. You know, that a powerful which would, phrase, which, which usually stops an argument, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, and, and and I'd love to say that me and my dad were shoulder to shoulder buddies toward towards the end of his life. We weren't quite there, but we were. Our relationship was a lot better at the end of his life than it was at the beginning of my sobriety. You know, he died eight years. I was sober eight years. And you're talking about that time I, we went. I took. I said, "Why don't you come with me to the New Year's Eve dance?" Because he didn't understand AA. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted me to get sober. But when I got sober in AA, he was like, "What? You know, what's the deal? Why couldn't you do that over here?" Yeah, right. I was throwing yeah. cold water on you to get you out of bed. You know? <laughs> it, it's kind of like I, I said. So he didn't understand what we do in AA. I know my right. parents were grateful that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. You know, especially my mother. My mother and I had a much better relationship. But when my dad, um, I think they just wanted to understand what was going on here. So I said, why don't you come with me to a New Year's Eve party? And, we'll, I, you know, there's a couple of speakers. We'll eat dinner. I'll introduce you to some people. And we did. He came. He hung out. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to go. He, he left before New Year's, before midnight. He, uh, so I walked him out to the car. And, you know, I had never, I had never said, I love you, Dad. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Because that's when Matt, Matt said, you know, you don't have to wait for your father to tell you he loves you. You can tell your dad you love him. Now, so you got and, that from your sponsor. From Matt. Yeah. Matt suggested that. You don't have to wait. Because I always thought, I, mm-hmm. I didn't hear mm-hmm. it from him. He didn't love me. Right. You know, he did love me. And I know he loved me. I, I can look back at, at the things he did and realize that was his way of showing love. But at the end of that night, I walked him out to his truck. I said, you know, I really, I'm really glad you came tonight. And uh, I just want to tell you I love you, Dad. And he said, me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. And I gave him a hug, and he went home. Yeah. You know? And, you know, I know that over the next few years uh, prior to his death that I would just show up. I'd just go over there and watch a baseball game with him. I'd go over there and help him do something around the house. And when he was on his deathbed, I was the last person to get to go in there and talk to him. And I sat there, and I was thinking, you know, as I was sitting there uh, praying, and I thought, man, what what do I have? What can I say to my dad? And I, and I realized I had said everything I needed to say, and I had done the things I had. And, and all I had to do was say, thank you for being my father. You know, mm-hmm. I love you. Wherever you're going, rest in peace. You know, and that was a really good, that was a touching thing for me to be able to say that. You know, that, and I think that we had mended our relationship mm-hmm. to the best of, to the best of our ability mm-hmm. for two hardheads, you know, yeah. that came from two different sides of the track. I thought it was pretty, you know, it was pretty cool and it was, it was very touching. Yes. Yeah. So that, that That's amends beautiful. was awesome, man. Yeah. 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 Yep. Same here. We reconciled to a certain extent, yeah. but we reconciled to the extent that I quit fighting. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's where the uh, "you may be right, Dad" came yeah. in handy for me. Oh, is like, because yeah. so, he was hard headed. Believe me, yeah. he, he was setting his ways. Yeah. That was not going to change, and I didn't try to change him. I didn't, yeah. you know, I just had to accept him for where he was. And that that day where we talked about his childhood really set me free mm-hmm. from that. Right, because it's a higher perspective Absolutely. being able to see where somebody came from, yes. rather than it being all about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's not a normal place for us to no. come from. I'm, I'm not looking to understand no. other people when mm-hmm. I was an active alcoholic, and even in early mm-hmm. recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I know Richard that you have been through hell <laughs> a couple of years ago, <laughs> and you did that in recovery. I did. I uh, I went through cancer. I had throat cancer back in uh, 2010, actually. So it's been uh, it's going on. It's about 10 years. October will be 10 years. Your voice is strong. Um, oh, yeah. My karaoke voice is not as good as it used to be. <laughs> I can only sing those deep-seated songs, you know. I can't hit the high notes anymore, but hey, I'm grateful. There's some good deep I'm, songs. Though. Oh, there are. I mean, I, you know, Johnny Cash yeah. and David Allen Coe, them guys, you know, I, that's who I toot around the karaoke bar. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, and that's another thing, Don, is like, as going through those life experiences like that and... um of course, you know, we can, we can sit here and say, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But the truth is that that happens to people. It does. And um, I'm grateful that, one, it happened to me. I was 18 years sober when I got diagnosed. I don't know how I would have reacted if I was 18 days sober. So having 18 years and having worked this program to, to the depths that I had worked it really helped. Now, I can still tell you that, it was hard to accept help, you know, because I'd been, I'd been the one, you know, I've been helping people for 18 years, yeah. you know. So when it was time for me to get help, it was like, oh, no, I got this. You know, when you get throat cancer, you do not got this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's got you. And so 
Matt told me, again, I would talk to my sponsor, and he said, listen, when people offer to help, you have no right to destroy the spirit of the giver. Oh, yes. No right to destroy the spirit of the giver. Just say thank you. Yes, I'll take your help and thank you. And so it was cool because they, they did this care calendar and people took, I mean, people just showed up. They, they slept on my sofa in eight-hour shifts mm. while I sat in a, a recliner uh, drooling on myself because I was on heavy narcotics. Um, the, the, the treatment was whew. about would the treatment was as bad as the yeah. disease. The treatment felt like it was going to kill. I it I was I was probably remember. seven weeks, eight weeks into the treatment, thinking I just want to walk in front of a bus. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give alcohol the the pleasure of killing me, but damn, I might just go out and walk in front of a bus because it was it was the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life, mm-hmm. physically. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, in the same regard, when I talk about that, it was one of the most spiritual things I've been through in my life, too, to see those people. It was just, the people. The, the the network of recovery. Yeah, oh, the people, man, the, the caretakers. and the From AA and NA. You know, I had made a lot of friends in NA. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to see those people suit up and show up and not ask questions, just come over and clean my house. Take me to my doctor's appointments. Monitor my meds. You know, mm-hmm. because you're on some serious meds. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of people struggle and relapse mm-hmm. uh, when they're on heavy medications. So I had people monitoring my medication, making sure I took it when I was supposed to take it, how much I was supposed to take. You know, and they'd take me to my home group. And if I threw up, they'd clean it up. I, it was amazing. And people, in, you know, and I would try to, I would talk about my struggle with that. And people like you were talking about would come up to me and say, man, you, you, I really want to thank you. You've helped me so much. And I was thinking, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I ain't doing anything to try and help you. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know, but of course, it's like you get on the other side of that and you realize that um, it, it really is grace. You know, it's, uh, there's, there's a blessing there that you don't see in the beginning. You yeah. know, you don't see it in the beginning, and but you don't see it in, while it's happening. Well, you, you just, I had to get to the end of it. Yeah. And, and realize right. that, wow. Because, you know, when, while I'm going through it, I'm in la la land. When, mm-hmm. I, when I started to, when I was able to stop the treatments and start coming back to my senses a little bit and seeing those, you know, realizing, wow, there have been people here. And, you know, talking to people like Charlie and mm-hmm. uh, Donna, who, who got this, and uh, Ashley, who got it kicked off. And realizing what went on, you know, I learned to play the guitar because of throat cancer, you know, because of the time you had because time of the time. Molly, and... you guys know Molly, yeah. yeah, right. She's been on. She's she's one of the Doe girls. I don't know what the Doe boy is, but she she's one. Of, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm two of my favorite Doe boys now. But Molly would come over and play the guitar while people were at the house. She was there to entertain them. She didn't care. I was over there like... Uh, <laughs> You're just drooling. <laughs> you know, Molly was over there just Damn. hanging out, being a wonderful person, playing some music for people while they were doing some things around that. And, you know, I said, apparently, this is I this is a hereafter story because I didn't know this went on in the beginning, <laughs> right? <laughs> I told Molly, I wished I had learned to play the guitar when I was a kid. And I, I'm saying all this while I'm under the influence of all the medication. So I don't have an idea that I'm saying it. <laughs> well, when, at the end of my uh, treatment, when I was able to, I couldn't even go upstairs. I had a feeding tube and a portica. I sat in an easy chair for like six months. I couldn't move. I, had a, I couldn't roll over. I had to sit in that chair. When I finally was able to, to uh, 
get up and make make a move. I live in a two two story condo, and I was going upstairs, and there was a guitar in the crook of the stairwell, and I was like, I <laughs> no, said, uh, okay. "Oh my goodness, man! Who? Somebody left a guitar here. I don't play guitar. Whose guitar is that? You know?" And I walked by that guitar for like two years. And one day I walked by it, and I now I'd gone on Facebook and said, "Hey, I know a bunch of people helped me out during my my crisis. Thank you, love y'all. Somebody left a guitar. Just let me know. I'll get it to you." No response, nothing. Two years I walked by that guitar. One day I walked by. I said, "I'm gonna learn how to play that thing." So I just picked it up, YouTube the E chord, uh-huh. and started doing it. Six months later, I ran into Molly at Tate Street Festival. She's down there listening to some music. And I said, Molly, you're never going to guess what happened. I've been learning how to play the guitar for six months. Somebody left a guitar at my house. I just went through this whole story, and she's just looking at me, shaking her head, going, I left that guitar there for you. Oh, I love that. She probably told you she left it, and she you didn't remember did, it. She probably did, but I'm thinking, wow, what a, that's so crazy. That, that's you know, and incredible. That, I love you know, that. So it's, uh, you know, there's so many blessings that come from the trials in life, I guess. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go through any of it again. I had no. four strokes, and the, yeah, but and I can say that uh, one of one of anything's never enough, Don. What's yeah, going on? Yeah. <laughs> Get him, Richard. You know me. You know me. I want too much. Yeah, but looking back on it and seeing how Absolutely. it is, how people came and helped, and mm-hmm. the people that cared yeah. for me, and all that is. The experience of, at the time, there's a lot of times where I was in despair. Sure. But I had been sober long enough that I felt that I'm not giving this up. Right. Because this has always worked. So I always did my morning prayer. Yeah. Though I would not, I didn't really do it with any zeal (laughs) because I was kind of pissed off. But I, I had yeah. to ask God to keep me sober every day. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when I, when I got diagnosed, I thought, you know, I went through that, I don't know, an hour of morbidity where I was like, oh, God, mm-hmm. here it is, the end. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. Let me get let me get six Hooter girls to carry the casket, and I'll just go out. I'll get yeah. a couple of eight balls, a couple of fists of gin, <laughs> and just go bang. <laughs> About an hour later, I'm like, you know what? It's just cancer. You're not dead yet. Yeah. You're not dead yet. God hadn't brought you this far to just say, I'm done with you, Richard. So let's just let's just keep this thing flowing. Yeah. And even when I got to a place where I wasn't praying, because I couldn't, you know, I was just mm-hmm. those people Drug that were out. praying for me, there's that power there. And so it's kind of like, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't going to surrender. I was going to try and fight the good fight until my last day, right? Mm-hmm. I, heard, I heard a fellow in AA a long time ago said, live each day to the fullest. Treat people the way you want to be treated and try to enjoy your laugh and do that like it's going to be your last day. And one day you won't be disappointed, right? And so I, I try to live like that, man. I try to enjoy each day. I try to help if I can, you know, to the best of my ability, help somebody. And just at the end of the day, have a good laugh, you know. I, for a second there, I thought I had misheard you and Me that too. you said try to enjoy your life. <laughs> yes. But I heard okay. try <laughs> to your enjoy laugh. your laugh. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm so glad you followed yeah. up with that because I love that. I've never yeah. heard that. I love Enjoy that. Enjoy your laugh. I mean, it, we got, I found a great laugh in recovery. Yeah. yeah. And it's awesome. It's an enormous amount of fun being sober. It is wonderful. And it's, oh my God. I had no idea that no. it was possible, but it is. No. And I have to thank it's people like y'all, you know, who were here yeah. and said, come on, 
we're going to show you how you can do this thing and enjoy it. No, 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 no. You were here first. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just saying there were guys, there were guys before me who were exactly. here who said, come on, yeah, come on. Exactly. Man. That's what I'm yeah, but, no, but I know. You are the oldest fart in the room. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> At least when it comes to sobriety time. Uh, okay. I, I will go with that, I guess. And so we're all, we're all grateful just today. Just by saying, I, Richard, enjoy your laugh. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> Okay, hang oh, on. Yeah. Protect Watch your out. head. Hold on to your hat. <laughs> it's time for our old timers question. Who are you calling an old timer? Richard. <laughs> well. Because <laughs> that's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Mm. Well, no matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time. Right, Richard? Richard. One day at a time. <laughs> Uh, you can post a question for us on boiledowlaa.org. We have a question. This question is from Susie from Huntington, West Virginia. Why is there such a big deal about talking about drugs when they're mentioned all through the first 164 pages? Well, I can understand the confusion of the whole idea of the singleness of purpose of AA is to help people with alcoholism get sober. And I think that it was, it's developed just so that that message doesn't get diluted. But there's nobody since, I'm going to say 1975 that came into AA <laughs> that didn't use drugs. It certainly wasn't the case for me. But it is the case that the, in my case, the one thing that I could not give up was alcohol. I got to the place where I had given up everything else except for alcohol, and it was impossible to give up alcohol. I just needed more of it because I dropped the other things. So I appreciate that there is a program for people who cannot possibly quit drinking. It's not possible. There was one time after a meeting that there was a newcomer there and I was cleaning up the kitchen and the guy came in the kitchen and he said, and it ended up just being the two of us were the only people left at the meeting. Mm -hmm. I was going to lock up the room. And he said, well, all this talk about alcohol, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> I, I just feel like I'm going to leave here and I'm going to get some crack. <laughs> and I was going, don't do that. It's the only thing I could say, but I've never done crack. And so I, I talked to him about it and t counseled him not to do it, but it, it, had, it didn't have the depth and weight that it would have had if I had used crack and gotten sober and had been able to say with authority, I know exactly what you mean. You know, when I heard people talk about drinking and they understood the secret inner thinking that went on about my drinking and all, mm -hmm. I was going, oh shit, these people have my number. Uh, they know what they're talking about. So I think there's a real place for NA and AA to be separate from each other because of that experience. Because I felt like I was inadequate in, the, in that experience of helping that guy. I, I don't know what happened to him. But I know that mm -hmm. if he had been at an NA meeting, somebody would have been able to speak to him directly about his crack habit and right. being able to get off of it mm -hmm. in a way that I was unable to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a place for AA and there's a place for NA. And to keep the singleness of purpose is why we do that, even though it's well accepted that lots of people in it in AA have used drugs. Mm -hmm. What's your thinking on this, Richard? Well, I mean, that's a, a, a great question. I really go along those lines. I think the singleness of purpose is really vital. But in saying that, I would also say when I share... And I, and I, you know, I came in 92. I used some drugs. I don't want that to shock anybody, <laughs> but it happened. But when I share from the podium and I talk about drugs, that's part of my story. That's, you know, that's my story at the podium. Mm-hmm. I don't apologize for that. Mm-hmm. I did mm-hmm. not know I was going to join Alcoholics Anonymous. So, you know, my journey is my journey. When it comes to carrying the message to an alcoholic who still suffers, and, it, and, and I find a lot of dual sufferers these days, like you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, don't ever—my first thing would be don't let that talk run you out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know there are good people in AA who will talk to people after a meeting. Mm-hmm. And that's where I did a lot of that, was after the meeting, instead of trying to call somebody out like a gruff old guy, hey, we don't talk about drugs— I would say, let's, let's talk after the meeting. We'll get a cup of coffee. We'll sit on the picnic table, and I'll talk. I don't have a lot of ex- experience with IV heroin users and all that, but I know some people who do, you know, and I can get you their contact, you know. So I think that, you know, when I'm, when I'm working with a guy outside of the meeting, one-on-one, sponsor, sponsee kind of thing, and I'm going through the book, I deal directly with drinking and how we overcome our drinking, you know, and the steps we take to, to feel apart again. I try not to judge, you know, when it comes to that stuff. I've seen a lot of people get up and leave because they get called out for talking mm. about drugs in AA. And that, you know, and I think of, it's a sign of the times. The program does not change. Uh, it's the same. But the people coming into the program, we don't have many pure alcoholics anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we really don't. So I, I just try to remember that when I'm working with somebody and I'm going through our literature— when I talk about alcohol, it's all-inclusive. I don't try to label it anything. I'm like, I don't care. You know, if you have a problem with gambling, hey, it's under, it falls under alcoholic behavior to me. I don't try to say you need to go to GA. I may suggest that. You might want to check out some GA meetings. But if you're coming to AA, let's look at the principles. Because what I found is the same principles that worked on this drinking thing, have worked on my drug thing, have worked on my sex thing, have worked on my money thing, you know. It, yeah, uh, you know we it's talk a, about relationships, and you know we talk about topics in Alcoholics Anonymous, and so we use the steps to get up. We you know. use the steps to guide through all that stuff, and I think it's the same. But there is, I do believe in the singleness of purpose. You know, I used to go to a meeting that was real rigid about mm-hmm. you're only alcoholics, and you don't right. say if you don't say you got to say you're an alcoholic. Right. And I try and catch somebody before the meeting and say, listen, yeah. just say you're an alcoholic. Right. I mean, did you have a problem with drinking? Okay, well, just say you're an alcoholic mm-hmm. and hang out. Yeah. yeah, It's okay. Just leave it at that. You know, I, I try to respect the fellowship that I'm, sure. I'm attending. That said, you know, I, uh, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, did drugs, absolutely did drugs. Like you, Don, I, I was able to mm-hmm. quit every du- uh, drug that mm-hmm. I tried. Mm-hmm. Alcohol, I couldn't quit. It kicked my ass. Mm-hmm. And so I went to AA because that's where I heard other people who alcohol kicked their ass. Right. 
That was 2002, 2003. And then in 2012, after diet pills and poppers became part of my sobriety story, uh, and I started over, that was when I was introduced to Crystal Meth Anonymous. And Crystal Meth, meth is not part of my story. I have never seen meth mm. until I helped a sponsee clear out his apartment. And that was after CMA, joining CMA. And I went to CMA. I was an active member of CMA for uh, two or three years. But you um, started over in AA Well, as both. Well. Both, yeah. You mm. know, I, I reset my sobriety date is what I did. And you didn't drink. You I didn't drink. I did not drink when meth. I reset. And I didn't do meth, but I used some substances in a way that were not okay with my definition mm. of my sobriety. Gotcha. Drugs are mentioned, I think, 34, 35 times mm. in the first 164 mm. pages. And I think the first mention is on page seven. They're in there, okay? <laughs> Thumper, the thing is, <laughs> uh, the thing is, as was so succinctly put to me when I started over and I was going through that pain of starting over, that first year was, was emotionally a, a turmoil. Mm. And someone simply said, go where you're fed. Mm-hmm. There's all these A's. I refer to them as XA. Mm -hmm. X is the variable. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. AA is the mothership. Mm -hmm. We know this. Mm -hmm. um, there's NA. Mm -hmm. There's uh, so Narcotics Anonymous. There's Crystal Meth Anonymous. There's mm -hmm. Cocaine Anonymous. Gamblers Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Overeaters Anonymous. Artist there, Anonymous. There is one. There is. Is yeah, there? There absolutely. is. Mm -hmm. I did that for so, a while. Mm -hmm. So there is so much out there mm -hmm. that has is 12-step program that is specific to a certain thing mm -hmm. in most cases, Narcotics Anonymous is rather broad, but um, specific to a certain thing because of that identification part. And that was the thing that I needed. Mm -hmm. I needed to be where I could identify mm -hmm. with what I was hearing, with the people who were saying it, with that what they'd been through was something like what I was going through. Mm -hmm. The same person who told me to go where you're fed also told in a share once something that was just absolutely fantastic. And it was like, you know, I've worked the steps now. I'm sober. I got a great life. And I can go to virtually any 12-step mm -hmm. meeting absolutely. and get strength and hope. Mm -hmm. But I needed to go to a particular fellowship in the very beginning to get my experience, to hear my mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. That's and experience good. is incredibly important in that beginning part. So I love that we are Alcoholics mm -hmm. Anonymous. Yeah. But alcohol is what kicked my ass, and AA is where I heard what I needed, mm -hmm. and it's where I relate strongly. CMA, who knows? When I move to California and CMA is really strong out there, mm -hmm. my intention is to become active in CMA again too. We'll see. Yeah, it's like, I don't think it's—the principles don't change. Right. Whatever fellowship you're in, it, the, the principles are princi they're spiritual principles. They're the same. Mm. And I think learning how to respect the fellowship I'm in. Yeah. You know, when I'm in AA, I say I'm an out. When I go to Narcotics Anonymous, I enter, if I share, I say I'm an, I'm a, I'm an addict. My name yeah. is, you know, and, and so I think there's some something that comes with growing up in here and learning some of that stuff and having mm -hmm. people that, you know, because it's like you guys, alcohol was the one that got me. Was it was it my drug of choice? I hear people say, "What was your drug of choice?" I'm like, "Well, I don't know that I had a choice, you know." <laughs> More, <laughs> you know, I, I had an alternative, right? It yeah, was, it was, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it was like that. I'm going to live spiritually, or I'm going to die doing what I'm doing. So it's, you know, I think it's it's growing up in here and kind of respecting that and respecting yeah. that tradition. 
Yeah. You know, and identifying as whatever fellowship I'm in as part of that fellowship, not to try and make myself different or mm-hmm. anything. And I don't want other people to feel different. That's that's part of the, yeah. you know, when I talk about, when I hear people in, in our meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous talk about drugs, I don't want them to feel like they're being separated because of that. So I, I try and make it a point to talk with them after the meeting and just say, listen, we're oh. glad you're here. You might want to identify as an alcoholic in an AA meeting, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you feel like you need to identify for the Coke habit or the, the Xanax, I know some people over there. You know, again, I think a lot of that. But the principles are the same. I can go to any fellowship and grow spiritually. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to, to continue to operate from that place of, of trying to be of service. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to discipline right. this yeah. person. Right. Well, I like it, and so you put it on <laughs> put it on the uh, individual to respect the program that you're in, yeah. but know that each one of them can speak mm-hmm. to everything. Mm-hmm. Richard, yes. thanks. Thank thanks you. for being here, today. Don. I appreciate it, Sam. Thank you, guys. I, man, I got to hang out with two two guys I respect so much, yeah. and. Yeah, we get we, to talk about two of my favorite things, right? Yeah. Recovery you? and me. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew it had to be. I mean, I, I, I figured it would be Don and Sam, but... <laughs> you guys are way high up on the list. <laughs> Richard, thanks so much. Thank you. Watch out. You know, that owl doesn't even swoop anymore. It's getting lazy. Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of Alcoholics Anonymous and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. probably been passed around for a long time but it's someone took the language from the big book Mm -hmm. and all the uh the dated references and dated language and made a story no kid out of all of those it's funny all right and today's reading (laughs) (laughs) as the boiled owl churns all right gin mills and doughboys and roadsters oh my I was boiled as an owl when John Barleycorn picked me up in his Model T Roadster on Armistice Day so we could dance with the flappers and it girls at the local gin mill. <laughs> After way too many highballs, I tried to salvage Professor Langley's flying machine at the bottom of the Potomac River. Yes, I was a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. I thought Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were a swell pair of screwballs, so I went on a spree with them and tried to overtake Walter Hagen on the golf course. Later, I went on a roaring bender with some doughboys and longshoremen after we read the Sunday supplement describing a proposal to explore the moon by means of a rocket. My hat is off to them. During a lucid interval, I went from steerage to captain's table trying to stay on the water wagon. I briefly considered signing the proffered temperance pledge before I sailed for over there. I'd try almost anything, including frothy emotional appeal to avoid the belladonna treatment. 
I was afraid I'd have to call a doctor and administer sedatives to myself under his direction because my telephone jangled at any time of the day or night and I had the jitters. To help me sleep, I was reduced to reading the latest bromides from Henry Ford and a celebrated American statesman. It didn't work. Eventually, out came the carpet slippers and a bottle. Sure enough, <laughs> sure enough, I got tight and soon felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. The goose hung high and there would be no Saint Helena for me. I used to be an above-board chap, but my crooked thinking led me to become an alcoholic crackpot and an outright mental defective in full flight from reality. I drank in speakeasies and at plain, ordinary whoopee parties. Whoopee! <laughs> I hid my bottles in the coal bin, the ash container, the clothes chute, and the cyclone cellar so no one would drink my bathtub gin or throw it down the waste pipe. In addition, I was self-centered, egocentric as people like to call it nowadays. I'd been caught between Scylla and Charybdis and felt like I'd been hit by a fast-moving trolley car. <laughs> Wait, is this the original manuscript? Of course it is. <laughs> There's even a coffee stain on it. I loved going to the moving pictures, but I couldn't even decide whether to watch newsreels of Lunar Flight or see Wallace Beery in Tugboat Annie. Little did I know that soon I would be a shivering denizen of King Alcohol's mad realm and that I would need to take the bit in my teeth to keep the hideous four horsemen at bay. The Laughing Academy beckoned, and the pokey didn't look too bad either. As far as sex was concerned, I was on a straight pepper diet. Sometimes I went out with my high-stepping friends and looked around in the nightclubs or their equivalent for something besides liquor. Wink, wink. I wanted to stay away from potential female alcoholics who could turn into the real thing and be gone beyond recall in a few years. Most of them were wet blankets who raised the very devil and put me through the ringer. <laughs> I was drawn to women folk who, through no fault of their own, became accustomed to wearing the family trousers. When I finally met someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what I had to offer, I felt like a gaunt prospector, belt drawn in over the last ounce of food, whose pick had just struck gold. Now that I found a loyal and courageous girl who would literally go through hell for me, I need look no further for Utopia. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? <laughs> That's very colorful language. Why, why, yes it is. I can't imagine where they got all that. Kenneth, who was on a previous episode, gave me this today, and I wanted to share that with our owl folk. 